Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. Thank you for joining us today for transmitting the legacy of the Holocaust, the role of the Holocaust Museum. Um, I'm so thrilled to bring together this panel uh, with Beth Keen, who is the CEO of the LA Holocaust Museum, Museum of the Holocaust, Richard Hirschhout, the founding director of the Illinois Holocaust Museum, and Elizabeth Gelman, the executive director of the Florida Holocaust Museum. Um, I just want to say what a thrill it is to bring everybody together, especially I'm in Tampa right now, my hometown, and to be able to bring Elizabeth uh, to join the West Coast, um, one of the perks of this time. We get to zoom in with whomever from all over, but um, it's great to have you. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Michael. I just want to do a very brief introduction. Many of you know him. He's one of the world's leading Holocaust scholars. He's currently the director of the um, Siggy Ziering Institute, exploring the ethical and religious implications of the Holocaust at AJU. Um, he's been, he's had many, many roles. I'll just name two more. The former director of the U.S. Holocaust Research Institute at the U.S. Holocaust Museum and was the president and CEO of the Survivors of the Shoah Visual History Foundation and many more. With that said, thank you so much, Michael, and I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to you. Okay. Um, I think let's set up the context for it. We are at a very special moment in history. We're at the moment where we're undergoing the transition from uh, living history to historical memory. Um, survivors of the Holocaust who averaged between 18, uh, between the age of 18 and 40, if you were too young, it was difficult to survive. If you were too old, it was difficult to survive. And 40 was considered much older than we would consider it today. Um, <clears throat> are now leaving the scene. 18 year olds would now be 73, uh, would now be 93. A um, 40 year old would be 115. So there are uh, every day, we are all experiencing the loss of survivors, which means that the air of the survivors mission is going to be institutionalized in the mission of museums, memorial centers, educational centers and the like. And we thought it would be a very interesting experience for us to have with us uh, people who either have created and or directed museums uh, to ask the question about what does this mean? Where does it go? What is the transition? And uh, also how do they reach out to a new audience for each, uh, for which um some of the formative events of our lives are ancient history. Um, uh, an interesting example I'll give you from another museum, which was that the um, two days ago we commemorated the anniversary of the um, of the uh, 1995 bombing of the uh, Murrow Building in Oklahoma City. And they used to have a uh, very interesting question in that museum. Where were you on April 19th, 1995? Now, you now have a whole generation that not only was alive, was not alive, 
You even have a generation uh, whose parents were not necessarily alive 25 years ago uh, coming in, and the question of where were you is a very different expression at that point than it is at the point at which the question was first asked than it is now. Our panelists are Beth Keen, who is uh, the director, for those of us in Los Angeles, of a neighboring uh, museum that's uh, within, I guess, a mile, mile and a half of Temple Beth Am. Uh, Beth uh, has been the executive director for a couple of years now, two and a half years. She's the former president of the institution. She uh, came to this with a background in both um, finance, which is management, and also a tremendous background in um, volunteer work and in fundraising. She had been uh, the president of the museum before becoming its executive director, and uh, she's been associated forever and ever since she was a young uh, a college student with the University of Pennsylvania and their efforts. Uh, Beth also um, uh, is the uh, granddaughter of Holocaust survivors, and her mother was a classmate of mine in college. So we go back a long way. Uh, Rick Hershott um, comes to us. Rick, I want to introduce to the community because he's a no resource to the community, comes to us, uh, is now the director of the Los Angeles Office of the American Jewish uh, Committee, comes to us after a long background in ADL. He and I worked very, very closely together uh, in the creation of the uh, Illinois Holocaust Museum and Educational Center, which made the transition from a storefront to a $70 million uh, to a 70,000 square foot, uh, multi-million dollar fa uh, facility. Um, the leader of its campaign is now the governor of uh, the state of Illinois. And Rick was involved in uh, every dimension of that transformation. Um, he had the uh, bad fortune, the good fortune to hire me, and we worked very, very closely together for um Oh, probably about a half dozen years to uh, bring it to fruition. Uh, the one person I don't know well, but whose museum I do know uh, quite well, uh, is Elizabeth Gilman, who uh, is the executive director of the Florida Holocaust Museum for the past seven years. Prior to arriving in Tampa Bay, she had leadership position in several Chicago um, nonprofits, including the Children's Museum, the Spurtis Jewish Museum, and the Terra Museum of, um, of American Art. And while serving as education director of the Spurtis Museum, she published a curriculum on Jewish history, anti-Semitism, and the Holocaust, and began graduate work in Jewish professional studies. So she comes with a very fine background. And I'm going to ask them to address, and then um, uh, we'll work together, and I will certainly address it as well. Uh, but we'll ask them to uh, address uh, several questions that are pivotal. Uh, each of your institutions was started by survivors that have undergone a transition. Tell about us about the origins and the transition, 
and tell us also a little bit about what's been lost and what's been gained. Let's start with Beth, because Beth's going to recount the history that some of us know, and therefore she better be accurate, otherwise we'll be in a little bit of trouble, But uh, and some of us have actually lived through. But let's start with Beth, and then we'll go around. Please, Beth. Okay, thanks. Well, thanks for inviting me today. Um, it's fun to be on this panel with my colleagues. Um, so Los Angeles Museum of the Holocaust was founded in 1961 by survivors who met at Hollywood High School. And it's kind of an interesting story. They were taking an English class, an adult English class, and they decided that it was really important for them to create a safe space where they can remember their loved ones who were killed in the Holocaust, but also um, to pull together some of their precious, you know, personal belongings that they um, took with them. And they also wanted to educate youth. So they were, when you think about it, they were very visionary. <laughs> and they created the museum and the mission that they created back in 1961, Commemoration and Education of the Holocaust, um, and to never turn anyone away from learning about this history remains true today. So we're still a free museum and we still share the same mission. Um, so also we're a primary source institution and most of our artifacts were collected by our founding survivors. So we teach this history through their personal stories and through oral testimonies. Um, what's different, I got involved when I first moved to LA, it was the late 90s. And as Michael mentioned, I'm a granddaughter of survivors. And fun fact, I think I'm the oldest 3G in the world. <laughs> you can find someone older than me, I'm turning 53 this summer. Um, let me know. Uh, so I, when I moved to LA, I wasn't connected to the survivor community and my husband is a filmmaker and he was working with Michael actually on this film swimming in Auschwitz. And he told me I needed to go to the museum because my people were there. So I did, I, I showed up and I met the survivors and at the time, so now this is like early two thousands. We're talking about 20 years ago. The museum was run by the survivors. Most of the board members were survivors. They were giving the strategic direction of the museum. They were, doing the tours they, you know, they were in charge of everything. They were doing the bookkeeping. Um, and there were always, whenever you went over there, 10 to 20 survivors at a time, they would go there to engage. It was a, you know, really nice community. I felt at home hearing their, you know, Polish accents. It was very familiar to me. Fast forward now, 2020, um, we have one survivor on our board right now. Over the last couple of years, we've, um, we've lost quite a few survivors who are on our board. Um, about five years ago, we created a survivor advisory board just so that we could keep a lot of the survivors engaged and, um, and, and to look to them, you know, for our, um, for programming and vision and things like that. Um, so I would say that what worries me the most in this shift, and also it's not even just the day-to-day -day running of the museum, our, you know, board governance, it looks completely different today. But what worries me is the institutional knowledge that is getting lost. Because most, as Michael knows, and many of you who have visited our museum, 
um, we have this rich collection of artifacts that you see as you're walking through the galleries. And those survivors are the ones who had all of that institutional knowledge. And it has been transferred and we have 27 hours of content on our audio guides and we have a very robust archive collection with a lot of the information, but still, you know, hearing it from the eyewitnesses is very different. So that, that has been a huge shift. Um, and when you come to the museum today, you do see a survivor. Um, we have one every day who's speaking to students and the public, but you know, it's, it's not the same there. We look at them today. I look at them as being a huge gift to us and we're trying to get as much from them as we can right now. Um, you know, sharing their stories, documenting as much as we can, creating more content with them while we have them. You know, I, I, we feel this sense of urgency. Um, Tell us one thing, Beth, uh, just encapsulate it. Um, for a period of time, you guys were the wandering Jew, or the, the museum was not a, what, the museum was a permanent museum, but it, in, a te- in a series of temporary places. And right. what you've, so what you've created in uh, Yeah, in the mid-2000s. Achieved. Yeah, so every few years, the survivors were lost their, land, their lease, and they would get nervous, and they would have to pull the, every, the exhibit together and, and create a new one. And so in the mid-2000s, it was really important. We decided that we needed a permanent location, enough moving around. And they really wanted to ensure, you know, the museums will be around in perpetuity. And so we built the building that we're in now in Pan Pacific Park. And the city of L.A. generously donated the land for us to build on. And so we're celebrating our 10-year anniversary this year. And um, the survivors, when the building opened, I kid you not, there were a handful of survivors. Every time they walked in, they would bend down and kiss the floor (laughs) because it was so... And they, they would have tears. I mean, it was such a dream for them, um, you know, this for them. And then to see, you know, the thousands of students that the museum could accommodate, that was, that was a, a dream to them. And here we are 10 years later, and, and we've outgrown that space, and we're about to embark on a new campaign to build another building along the Grove Drive, so, um, okay. which is more important than ever. I learned when we were speaking that uh, Elizabeth goes by the nickname Beth, but not Liz. Uh, and since we have one Beth, and I'm not going to call you Liz, I'm going to call you Elizabeth. Thank you. We'll ask Elizabeth. We'll ask Elizabeth to speak. Otherwise, we're going to have Beth one and Beth two. And uh, we're used to it. <laughs> we are used to it. We we speak quite frequently yeah. together. Yeah. Um. Seem like seem like uh, you know. Um, uh, one of the children's books that we used to read, used to read our kids. But uh, Elizabeth, please. Sure. So um, thank you so much. And I'm so delighted to be uh, here and, and to be talking about this because I do think that it is certainly the most significant issue or should be the most significant issue that all Holocaust organizations are thinking about. Um, so first of all, let me tell you where we're located because I think that often people hear Florida and they think what an enormous Jewish community there is in Florida. And Florida has an enormous amount of Holocaust survivors 
or had at one time. I think it still has one of the largest. Um, but we are on the west coast of Florida. We're not on the east coast of Florida. We're not near Miami and Boca Raton. We're on the other side. We're in Tampa Bay. Uh, it's located in St. Petersburg. And uh, I'm often asked why the museum is located there. And it's because the founder of our museum, who was a, a Holocaust refugee, was a man who got things done. He brought together the entire community, the Holocaust survivors that were there, the Jewish community, the non-Jewish community. It was an enormous it was an enormous task, and Walter Lobenberg certainly had what it takes uh, to get things done. Um, not only did he uh, begin the museum, that like lots of museums started with um, a, just a tiny room outside the Jewish Community Center where they put up posters and they put a tiny little exhibit about Anne Frank that drew 50,000 people. So they saw that that interest was there. So not only did he do that, but he was very instrumental in creating the Holocaust mandate for education in the state of Florida. So almost from its beginning, the Florida Holocaust Museum had a different type of role than most uh, community museums which is that we, of course, serve the Tampa Bay community, but we also serve the entire state of Florida, um, and we have a contract with the Department of Education. And, of course, we work with other centers that are throughout Florida because there are other Holocaust centers, and we work with them. Um, and they're in about eight counties, but there are 64 other counties throughout Florida where our museum is their resource. Um, so we are, again, created by refugees and survivors. Um, and the museum went through transformation twice. First, about 15 years ago, when it decided to be um, accredited, go through the accreditation accreditation process by the American Alliance of Museums to really bring all everything of what we do up to the highest standard. Um, it was an enormous, difficult project to get the museum accredited. And I know that because we were reaccredited two years ago and I was here at that time. Um, and I've also served as an accreditor at other museums. And so it was really wonderful to be able to dig in deep. The other big change and transformation the museum came after, not only did they go, did the area go through the Great um, Recession in 2007, 2008, like the rest of the country, but the, uh, the huge um, oil spill, the Exxon Valdez, impacted the area um, enormously. So at that moment, there was, um, they weren't sure the museum was going to survive. Um, it was in terrible trouble. Um, and so the board chair who ended up hiring me came in, Marty Burrell, and he really revamped the museum. And it went from a board of like 65 people on the board to a more manageable 20 people. And choosing how to keep Holocaust survivors involved was part of the different advisory groups that happened. So instead of having a board that was 
you know, half of the people were Holocaust survivors. It changed right then. It began that transformation of bringing into in the other generations, though it still does. We still have Holocaust survivors on our board, and often they are that um, grounding that certainly I turn to when there's any question of how the museum should be moving forward. We always look to our Holocaust survivors to take their temperature. Um, and so without them, and we went from when I got, there were five on the board, and now there are, I'm sorry, there's only one, and then there are two on our advisory council. It, it changes the way, it necessarily changes the way we're doing things. So the only the only other thing I want to say about who we are and what we do, the difference there is um, not only do we have a um, uh, we have a collection of over eighteen thousand artifacts, but we have a significant collection of artwork, visual art, contemporary responses to the Holocaust and other genocide. Um, there is a real sense of trying to create many portals for people to connect with the Holocaust. Just give us one more sense of where you're located in the town of St. Petersburg. So because that's also interesting to the museum itself. It is. It's very interesting. So when I got there to St. Petersburg, which was seven years ago, I would have said that we were on the edge of the downtown area. And now the transformation in St. Petersburg itself, we are right in the heart of the museum district. Um, there are now, I think, nine other museums um, in the downtown area, and we're right in the heart of it. Rick? Thank you, Michael, and uh, grateful for the opportunity to join with everyone today. The Illinois Holocaust Museum is located in Skokie, Illinois. And you can probably still go almost anywhere in the world and, uh, like a Rorschach test, uh, speak the word Skokie, and it conjures up um, a certain image and a certain uh, uh, visual of the attempt of neo-Nazis, a band of neo-Nazis, to uh, sow tremendous uh, fear and intimidation by their uh, declared intention to march and rally in Skokie in the mid-1970s. We're looking at 76 and 77. At, um, that, that's the period. And that's really the, uh, the predicate event that led to the magnificent Illinois Holocaust Museum that today is, uh, is, all, is now celebrating its 11th anniversary. We opened uh, on April 19th, uh, 2009. And Skokie is still to this day, while um, very much a, a, a richly diverse community, close to 100 languages are spoken uh, within the village. In the 1970s, it became a haven of sorts. It became a place where, if you, if you think for a moment of the, the population at the time, was uh, a village of 70,000 people, 40,000 of whom were Jewish, 7,000 of whom were survivors of the Holocaust. So 10% of the entire population of that community were Holocaust survivors. And that became uh, uh, too uh, attractive a target on the part of, of the uh, neo-Nazi uh, thugs that wanted to target and, and sow fear. 
I won't get into the details of, um, of, of that event. And there, there has been much written and spoken and films made about the events of Skokie. But that really was the moment in which survivors, at least in Illinois, began to find their voice. And out of that experience, created what was known as the Holocaust Memorial Foundation of Illinois, Inc. And I think to this day, that is still the legal name of the, uh, of the Illinois Holocaust Museum. A group of survivors, not unlike here in L.A., not unlike uh, in, in Tampa and St. Pete, a group of, of uh, undaunted survivors with uh, their own uh, sweat and labor, uh, put together a beautiful exhibit with their own precious artifacts. And for many, many years, the museum operated on a small storefront uh, location attached to a tavern. And, and if you didn't know where you were going down Main Street in Skokie, you could very easily pass by. But inside its doors was, was a place of tremendous heart and love. And, and it's, I think, fair to say that that little storefront that could literally transformed a generation of young people coming of age in Illinois and became the, really the, the gateway into the house of learning about the Holocaust. And to their credit, the survivors um, uh, were the first to see uh, a state, the state of Illinois, enact a mandate that a unit of instruction on the Holocaust uh, be taught. Like many such mandates, it was unfunded, but nonetheless, it was the apparatus of government, the imprimatur of, of, of state government, saying it was an important value um, to, to begin to teach and, and understand this terrible time in history. Fast forward about 15 years, uh, the survivors are, um, are many, many, uh, remark- have many, many remarkable qualities, and one of them, of course, is a sense of, um, of uh, smarts and vision and, uh, and, and just looking forward. And this was the critical moment, late 1990s, when they realized, began to realize that this small storefront would not uh, outlive them. And they began to dream. And they began to think about asking the questions, what if? You know, what if we really reached very high what if we reached out to philanthropists and others in the community and shared our dream with them? And they were uh, simply unrelenting and fearless, and they approached uh, the, the best of the best, including, as Michael uh, mentioned, J.B. Pritzker, who today, who, as we gather right now, is providing his daily briefing to, uh, to the people of Illinois and the terrible times that Illinois, among many other states, are experiencing with, with COVID-19. And JB was, uh, was hooked from the get-go. And that critical moment was really a moment in which the survivors, if we talk about a key change or a moment of transition, was the moment in which they trusted those of us, I am the uh, son-in-law of survivors, but they trusted many of us who either had a direct or indirect or perhaps no specific experience with having lived through and, and, and uh, witnessed this history. They trusted us to get it right and to be part of their circle. 
and to try to create an institution that would do justice to their to their stories, to their histories, and carry it forward for generations to come. So a lot went into this. The survivors have been and continue to be, though we are sadly losing them, continue to be uh, absolutely integral to the operation and the ethos and the heart and the soul of the institution. The Illinois Holocaust Museum is a 70,000 square foot facility, as Michael mentioned. It, uh, on any given school day, will see 500 kids of all ages come through its doors. And while the permanent exhibition is is, uh, appropriately uh, geared to kids 12 and up, we also made an early decision to try to bring younger children into the museum, as young as seven years old, not to present to them the history as we know it, but to, because we have so many survivors who were children at the time in their own experience, to try to impart some of the lessons that we hope young people, that all visitors will take away. Empathy, understanding, not allowing oneself to succumb to bullying, not being a bystander. And it's not to simplify all of this, but it's begin to think, it's begin to, to begin to, at a very young age, call upon each of us to recognize the tremendous power that we have to be part of, 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 of to be a force for good or to be uh, indifferent or to be, um, you know, someone who is, who is part of the problem. And each, yes, each of you has a building and an exhibition. The question I want to ask you is there's another component to a building and exhibition, and that's a changing component with changing needs and uh, with varying degrees of interest and everything else, and that's the audience. And I want to ask you a little bit about how has your audience changed and um, how are you reaching out to that changing audience? And the other qu- half of that question is, does the, does the story of the Holocaust resonate in this era at this time in history? Let's start with Elizabeth. We'll go out of order. (laughs) Um, So it's such an interesting question. Um, If I cut to the chase, I will say yes. I think that there is relevancy in our mission, and we have certainly seen that in the state of Florida. They just um, passed new legislation reiterating the importance and um, uh, Holocaust education, again, unfunded, uh, mandate was part of the required instruction and the commissioner of education this year said I want to know what's happening every school needs to tell me every school district needs to report back how they're teaching the Holocaust so we know that it's important to the leaders of our state um, I would say that for when I first got here it didn't seem to matter what we had in our temporary galleries and we have Uh, second floor this big. We started to experiment uh, about three years ago with bringing in what I would call blockbuster shows, Um, some specific to the Holocaust, like uh, we had the Eichmann show, uh, which brought in a lot of people, raised our attendance. Um, 
we've done two shows that are one about the Holocaust, uh, all about Bill Graham and the rock and roll revolution that brought in an entirely different crowd into the museum. And I know the Illinois Holocaust Museum also uh, scheduled that. We uh, pushed the connection, Bill Graham's connections as a Holocaust survivor very um pretty hard. Uh, and so we felt that people came out understanding the Holocaust. But for many times, we felt that people were had been afraid to walk into our building. They didn't know what they were going to see. Uh, like the Illinois Holocaust Museum, I believe, like Beth's Museum, we do not have graphic images in our permanent exhibition, but people are afraid that is what they're going to open the door to. Um, seeing those um, exhibitions really did make a change. And it brought in not just people to see the exhibition, but a lot of new members. Um, this past year, we did a, a, an exhibition. It was actually the second iteration expanded of it called Beaches, Benches, and Boycotts, all about the civil rights in the Tampa Bay, civil rights movement in the Tampa Bay area. And we found a lot of people who came in to learn about civil rights and then also learned about the Holocaust and vice versa. And I think it's really important to make connections um, with the lessons of the Holocaust and the other human rights and other genocides that are happening today. Yes. So first, I think I'll share the demographic that we're seeing um, the people who are coming to the museum. So when the students come for their compulsory, you know, tours, they're mostly, I'd say, two-thirds Hispanic, 99% not Jewish, and it's mostly eighth graders and, and up. And then the general public who visits, also the um, audience is mostly millennials. And more than 90% identify as not Jewish. And so it's important to really understand the way they need to learn today because that's actually changed a lot even since the museum opened 10 years ago. And we feel lucky that when it was curated, when Randy and you know the people who designed the museum um, they decided, they, they made a deliberate decision to make it more visual, as Beth alluded to before. And we do have graphic images, but it's not as text heavy. And so that makes it feel more contemporary for younger audiences today. They, they relate more to that. But, you know, the, the people who are coming to the museum, they, went, since the minute they were born, you know, they've been on the Internet. They've been connected. They're more connected to atrocities across the world. So the Holocaust is really the most effective educational tool that we have in, you know, um, in teaching um, why it's so important. Um, you know, everything leading up to 1933, even up to 1939, we spent a lot of time. And one of the things we just recently did because of the recent rise in anti-Semitism and hatred, we added a, an exhibit called Symbols of Hate. And like Beth said, making it socially relevant to today. How can we make these connections? How can we understand the way young people are learning? They have shorter attention spans, so we have to make sure we're getting the content to them in a way that they can understand and where they don't lose interest. And we're finding also because 
they're on their phones all the time. They don't necessarily want more screen time when they come to the museum. And um, so we, we do study our audience very closely and really try to understand how can we use the lessons from the Holocaust, make it relevant to today, you know, make these cross-cultural connections. You know, even we don't have the luxury of space like the Illinois Florida Museum with special exhibits, um, but we will with our new building. So we're always trying to look for ways of bringing in com different communities so we could have these conversations. So put a Holocaust survivor with a survivor from another genocide and, um, and, you know, having these conversations and young people can identify when, when even when survivors tell their story and you have, you know, um, a student whose parents aren't documented and a survivor talks about a knock on their door. These students feel that connection right away, right? So just making these connections is, is really a critical part of how we teach today. And they also feel intensely the difference that a stamp in a passport might make. Exactly. With the, di with the difference between a green card and not a green card in our generation. And, right. when, and when borders were the difference between life and death in the Holocaust generation, since we're talking a little bit of inside baseball, let me just say one word. Um, one of the great uh, tools of museums are what are special exhibitions. And every smart museum always calls it a special exhibition and not a temporary exhibition because nobody wants to fund things that are temporary and lots of people want to fund things that are special. And special gives you the opportunity to test uh, both to expand your mission and to test what's acceptable within your mission. So it's a very important inside tool by which museums think about their future and shape their future. Rick, tell us a little bit about the audiences that uh, come to Illinois. Well, here too, I think you've been with, with great uh, credit to the survivors had a broad, more global worldview from the very beginning. From the day that the doors opened to the museum, the Illinois Holocaust Museum also became the anchor institution for the Illinois Holocaust and Genocide Commission. The governor at that time, Pat Quinn, signed the law into effect in our building. And what that essentially did was created and sanctioned the opportunity for other communities that have faced the scourge of genocide to treat the museum, <clears throat> pardon me, to treat the museum as a place of reflection and memory and commemoration. And that is something that is, that is held true, whether it's the Armenian community, the uh, Cambodian community, uh, we talk about Darfur, we talk about Rwanda, We've brought survivors of other genocides together with Holocaust survivors, and it has essentially reinforced the human story. And that has, that has certainly uh, strengthened and expanded the audience as well. But I also just want to make a comment, just echo a comment that's been, that's been shared, and that is the, the, the imperative of contemporary relevance. There is so much going on in the world today that, that, holds uh, uh, echoes and antecedents 
to the buildup to the Holocaust and to the, the years of, of the Holocaust. And I, and I think it would, I would be remiss on a program today on Yom HaShoah not to, not to simply express, you know, the feeling of anguish in reading the, uh, the news brief last night that America's borders are closed to immigrants today. And even to read the, the news flash in the last five minutes that even uh, those seeking to enter the country with a green card may be put on hold for some time. And that is, um, history uh, has come alive here, not in great ways. And these two, without wanting to create false comparisons, this, this is still a moment in which um, how we behave, how we conduct ourselves as a society and individuals within a, as individuals within a democracy, raising our voice, or, or being quiet or being indifferent still matters tremendously. And that's, I think, a powerful lesson to convey to our audiences. I'm going to pick up, um, um, I'm going to ask a couple more questions, but I want to invite uh, the people who are with us to open their chat window and to ask some questions of their own to which the panelists will respond. Uh, Rick, you um, gave me the ideal transition, which is that um, if audiences change, the experience of audiences change. And there are two elements that um, I think have transformed what the audience deals with it as, as it goes through a Holocaust museum. Uh, it deals, number one, uh, in a climate of increasing anti-Semitism slash increasing hatred. And the second is uh, a greater sense of the fragility of democracy. Um, how has that changed the way in which you see your tasks? Beth? Am I on? Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that young people today, and like I said before, they, because they have access to news from Twitter feeds and social media and whatnot, you know, these symbols of hate are becoming more mainstream. And, you know, a lot of people don't understand the meaning behind it. They don't understand what these symbols of hate truly represent. And we saw that last year, you know, Newport Harbor High School, when the students you know, formed a swastika from their party cups. It was, it happened again at another local high school. So it's really important. Education is the key <laughs> as we know it, <laughs> that, you know, that is the most critical thing. Um, but the other thing that is so important, I, I think is collaboration. We can't do this in a vacuum. And so I think it's really important. We, have this amazing partnership between all of the Holocaust institutions in our country, including Illinois and Florida, and that all of the topics that you're raising today, we meet and talk about. And, you know, we, we share our vision and our strategies. And I think it's so important because we're all facing the same issues. And in order to really, um, amplify you know our efforts and and impact it's so important to really work together uh because we're all doing amazing things at a grassroots level and 
we're all adapting <laughs> to, you know, these things that are happening in our own backyard and around the world. And, um, you know, it's, it's an ongoing challenge, but we're, you know, it's our job. That's why we're here. We're educators. We need to, anytime something happens, people look to us. We become, we're a voice for the community. And it's really important for us to be, you know, a, a role model in that sense. And so, um, you know, we, we're feeling that, that pressure to, you know, in today's world and we can't, you know, indifference is not allowed. We, we have to use, while we have our survivors right now, you know, they are the most important gift that we could, you know, uh, we could turn to. And um, their messages, their stories, their messages, um, you know, are so important. Um, so, I don't know, does that okay. answer? Uh, let me add uh, one question uh, that uh, Ingram has um, added. What is your cooperation? Uh, and Elizabeth, I want you uh, to address uh, the questions that I asked, but let's add to it. What's your relationship with the European museums as well? Uh, and uh, 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 what are the challenges that, that we face as Americans that might be different than the European museums? Uh, and let's just add that to the component, add that to the mix. Thank you. What a great question, Ingram. And uh, thank you, Beth, for talking about collaboration because amplifying the impact is is um, really important. And being able to work together and learn from each other and uh, is really uh, critical at this point, especially when things are transitioning in such a rapid pace. Um, I think that if we aren't relevant we should just, you know, put up a statue and, and let people walk around and be done with it. Um, that relevancy to today, uh, drawing attention to what is happening in our world and in people's lives is absolutely critical for our mission to survive through the next few generations. Um, the other thing I want to tell you about Tampa Bay and the state of Florida uh, is that this is, it's a very different place than Illinois or uh, California. Um, the Tampa Bay area had the closest margin of votes like uh, between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in the entire country. That's our area. So um, there are people with a lot of diverse view, political viewpoints, and we're very proud that we are one of the few institutions that garners and is able to allow um, reasonable discussions between people who are looking at the world through very different viewpoints. Um, because of that, using the lessons of the Holocaust has become a way to make people think about different ideas. Um, we, are, we were about to open a special exhibition, Michael, all of, about uh, our, the artwork of Arthur Schick, who did a lot in propaganda. So not only were we examining Arthur Schick, but we were talking about propaganda and the importance of being able to recognize images and the propaganda that we have around today. Um, so being able to make those use our mission, again, I feel like it's really important. 
especially for who we are, that we ground everything into the Holocaust. We are still the Florida Holocaust Museum. We are not the Florida Holocaust and Human Rights um, or Genocide Museum. That's very important to our survivors, and it's important to um, our supporters as well. Even though both of those um, ideas, human rights and genocide, have been part of the museum since its infancy. But everything we do, we do wrap very much into the mission of the Holocaust. Um, I'm going to jump to Ingram's comment about the Holocaust museums in Europe. We do have relationships with him, them. We do talk to a lot of them. Our um, educator, who you know, Michael Ursula Szczepinska, uh, came from Poland uh, and worked in the Aus- at Auschwitz and a number of different centers throughout Europe. Um, and so she holds those relationships, which is really nice. And we're able to leverage those relationships. So when we're talking about um, teaching teachers or any of our educational um curriculum, we do often, we do reach out to those museums in Europe. And it is very different. I can't um, stress that enough, how different it is to be me, a Holocaust Center in, in, in Europe than it is in the United States. Uh, let me touch on that just for one second to address Ingram's question as well. Um, probably three quarters of the Holocaust institutions in Europe are located on historical sites. And that means that uh, the people going there, and and they have an advantage and a disadvantage. The advantage, which is unbelievable, is they have the advantage of authenticity, except on some of the sites where they've destroyed all the authenticity. And the disadvantage is they feel an obligation to tell the story of the site, and sometimes not the story that is beyond the site. And that becomes a limitation. Uh, we in the United States, uh, uh, but but the war itself and the Holocaust itself occurred there. And one of the struggles we all had to make is how do you transition between that a continent away, seventy five years in time, and and our world, and that becomes a very important one. And to that, ironically. In the United States, the most powerful voice in making that transition has been the interaction between survivors and the audience. And that I want to touch on the second um, uh, question, which is um, how do you come from the Holocaust to a message of hope? Why don't you tackle that? Rick? Yeah. Okay. Let me – one point I wanted to make just to your earlier question about – fragility of democracy and the moment in which we're living. And I think it's fair to say that each of the institutions represented today uh, are involved in this way. One of the, I think, tremendous public service uh, functions of the museum is the training of law enforcement. Uh, It's something I'm most proud of at the Illinois Holocaust Museum, that there is not a single new recruit cadet in the Chicago Police Department who graduates from the police academy without spending at least a full day in the museum, understanding the role and the failings of that protective function, that law enforcement function during the Nazi era. We think it creates a more 
empathetic and understanding and thoughtful uh, officer as they begin to be as they begin to to uh, embark upon their careers. And so, very very, um, I just think it's an essential function uh, to uh, to share. Can and you re- they, and, can you repeat the, but, the the third question, Michael? I'm sorry. And what we, well, we should say one more thing about them. They emphasize or they experience. 1933 through 1939 as a police experience. Right. In other words, for them, the important part of the exhibition, ironically, is the build-up to the Holocaust instead of the Holocaust itself. When when at, in Washington, we used to take the military academies through, their important focus was on what happened during the Holocaust when you took the police through, their important function was 33 through 39. And also now, I think increasingly, people look at 1918 through 1933 with the whole question of the fragility. Leah, you um, wanted permission to ask a question since you are real, you know, the, the Uber hostess. Uh, we have to give you the floor. So my question I'm asking as sort of a millennial, I am a millennial, um, and it ties into this question around hope. Um, Something I notice for myself, for other people in my age group is the feeling sort of disconnected to the Holocaust. And, you know, it's always been presented as this sort generally speaking, this really heavy, traumatic, major part of our history. Um, and, and it's definitely shaped me. My, my family was impacted by the Holocaust, um, on my, uh, grandmother's side, um, and beyond. But the point I'm bringing up is I did an exhibit at Temple Beth Am where we tapped into the other part of, um, Yom Hashav, uh, heroism. And I realized there's so many stories of strength and resilience. And I had never really in my brain thought about these sort of silver linings and powerful stories of, of resilience, whether it's p- making a publication, a, a newspaper, or you know, artwork, or practicing rituals at Auschwitz, or whatever it may be. I just feel like there isn't, in terms of messaging out there, an emphasis of these really amazing nuggets of strength and resilience and that the messaging, you know, to younger generations, I think that would be also inspiring is like learning that there are so many examples of real raw courage and that it's something to be not only sort of haunt us and and that we have to think about and process, but also to be inspired by. And I think it does tie into that making it relevant, but I guess in terms of messaging, Um, Do you, you know, to the panelists, do you, have you seen what I'm talking about in terms of younger generations wanting to connect to the story in sort of a different way or as a source of inspiration? Um, So that's my. my... Yeah. Can I, can I answer first? (laughs) Um, I think, I I think Leah has lobbed you a softball. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks Leah. Um, so I got to know my grandparents really well because I was 40 when they passed away. And, um, my grandmother, both of my grandparents, when they talked about their experiences, 
they talked about the spiritual resistance, which is how they, what got them through it. So I heard stories of my grandmother when she talked about going to bed at night in the barracks, there was always someone who sang a lullaby. She was really young. She was only 12 or 13 when she first was in Auschwitz. And so, you know, hearing these stories, my grandfather talked about the community, the brotherhood that he felt Um, you know, they would share their bread. My grandmother peeled potatoes, which was, you know, coveted, a coveted job. Um, And, you know, she would hoard the skins and, um, and other prisoners who walked by, she would toss the skins out and that saved their lives. And so I grew up hearing these stories and at the museum, in all of our galleries, we talk about this type of resilience, spiritual resilience, intellectual resilience. Um, we tie that theme into every, even when we talk about ghettoization, um, you know, the Jews were forced immediately to move into the ghettos, but what did they do? You know, they still obeyed the Sabbath. They still performed brisses if they could. They still celebrated, you know, every holiday. They still taught their kids their math lessons. You know, they tried to maintain their dignity as much as they could. And then, like you mentioned, there were the, you know, the heroes, the people that worked in the resistance groups or non-Jews who risked their lives. And and I think you're absolutely right. Bringing up all of these stories um, does resonate with young people today and, and, you know, makes them think, well, what would I do in this situation? What kind of choice would I make? Would I be one of those people, you know, um, going into the sewers and, and, you know, trying to smuggle food back if I was little, you know, what, what kind of decision would I make? Um, so it, it does inspire, you know, provoke those kinds of discussions. Um, but you bring up a, a really good point that I think, um, is something important that all of our museums should really touch on. Let me add one uh, brief thing, which is that, um, actually, I'll add it too. Um, audiences change by virtue of their experience. So um, each of these museums will probably have a story of someone who survived in hiding. And everybody's going to wonder now, what was the experience like in hiding? I mean, Anne Frank is going to be one of the... What's the experience like in hiding when you can't go out into the world? And we have an invisible enemy. They had a visible enemy. Uh, but we have all these technological means to interest ourselves. And they lived in a much more static universe, didn't even have access to radio. And I would bet that... Uh, you'll hear question after question to survivors uh, about that now in a way that you would not have heard before because all of us have the experience of now not being in hiding, but being indoors, not being able to go out, not being able to do all the ordinary things. Uh, And how you endure that now will be an interesting question. Uh, And the other thing that uh, each of you will, will should address is the relationship of survivors to the audience in, they're not symbols of victimization. They're symbols of having overcome victimization and comebacks and resilience. If, if I can jump in for a moment. Please, I, I, absolutely. Take I away. think so much of the experience from the day the, the day the doors opened on Main Street in Skokie, just speaking for Illinois, 
to up until today in the beautiful, still new, magnificent structure um, on Woods Drive in Skokie is about personalization. It's about the individual story. We had the great advantage when we were contemplating, as you well know, Michael, the, the creation of the museum to be able to avail ourselves of this treasure trove of testimony from the Shoah Foundation. Some 2,000 Midwest testimonies, a thousand of them from Illinois, another thousand from the, the collar surrounding states. And that has been uh, an anchor part of the, of the experience in the museum. But not only the testimonies, when a student visits and completes the, the tour experience, they could then go one-on-one -on -one with a survivor. That continues to this day. Time and time again, letters would come back from young students facing economic hardship, facing broken families, not knowing how to go get through another day in their lives, in their daily existence. And they drew tremendous inspiration from the story of the survivor. And some of these kids were even suicidal. And they had this experience and this encounter with the survivors. So I don't think we in any way should underestimate the tremendous power that we're really just scratching the surface of. And when we talk about a survivor in hiding, you may have seen the 60 Minutes uh, piece that Leslie Stahl conducted, uh, aired two weeks ago. It was, it was recorded before all of the, the pre-quarantine days of just five weeks ago. And this was, again, the latest innovation, the latest way of connecting with an audience from the Shoah Foundation called Dimensions in Testimony. It's sort of treated as, a hol as holography, but it's not really. It's artificial intelligence, and it's an incredible way of relating. And one of the survivors that was featured, the main survivor who was featured in that interview, that installment, was Aaron Elster, himself uh, a hidden child, uh, at 11 years old, he was hiding for a year and a half in the, in the roof of a, of a barn on a farm in his village. And the resilience, the, the appreciation of life, the ability to move forward is tremendously, tremendously powerful. And those are the lessons that we have to continue to carry forward. That's the contemporary relevance, and it will be with us for generations to come. The last thing I'll say is for all of our institutions, I hope, and, and I know the intention is, they were built to last. They're built to be here 50 years, 100 years, 150 years from now, and to still be relevant and to teach and draw from this, this history for lessons for humanity in an era, in an era that none of us will see. But we, but we hope this will help to inform. Let me ask one final question to each of the panelists, um, which is speculative. Um, what impact do you think uh, our collective experience, which is now not only an experience of young people, but of old people, of millennials, and of every generation, uh, how's that going to change the audience that comes into the museum? I'm sorry, could you repeat that question? I'm how not is, sure I understand. How is the experience of the coronavirus? Or oh, the coronavirus. How's okay. that? What's your speculation as to how it's going to change so, the visitors to the museum? Yeah, I, I think that 
over the next 12 months, it'll change the experience dramatically. You know, we're, I'm working closely with the board on an action plan. What is it going to look like when um, people are allowed back to work and businesses can open? Are people going to be required to wear mask masks when they enter? Do we have to take their temperature uh, and not let anyone in with a fever? Um, we have to monitor the number of people in each gallery. I mean, I do think that there are going to be visitor guidelines in the short term that we need to be mindful of. I think that in terms of the isolation though, I talk to the survivors every day. And what's interesting is, you know, while my kids are at home from, you know, from college and they're bored to death, even though they have classes, you know, this, I talked to the survivors and they couldn't be happier. One's writing a memoir, another one's making her jewelry. They don't look at it as isolation. They're looking at it. It's an inconvenience. I can still go for a walk. Um, I could pick up the phone. I have FaceTime. I've, I've, you know, um, I can go to the, you know, someone can go to the market and get my food for me. You know, it's to them, it's an inconvenience. And, you know, we look to them for hope and inspiration when we're feeling anxious and, and, you know, have trepidations about the uncertainty that we're facing. But I think it's, it kind of puts it into perspective for me that they have that reaction to this. And I almost feel like if my grandparents were still alive, they would, they would feel the same way. You know, the Nazis aren't looking for us. So what's wrong? <laughs> There's a, we're just stuck at home for a little bit. We have our TVs. Um, but, it, I mean, you know, it doesn't mean, you know, the feelings that we all have are real. You know, they're, they're still valid. And, again, it's another learning experience. Elizabeth? So for us, because we um, educate throughout the state, we had quite a few virtual um, opportunities that were out there that we normally only shared with school districts. We have a virtual tour of our permanent exhibition and um, – usually do it with the docent-led tour. So we put that out, and within a week, you know, 700 and something people had come to tour the museum virtually. And I think that that, um, I think that connection between what we can offer virtually and what we have in our galleries, there will be a synergy between that as we move forward. Um, I'm old enough to remember the fear of when people started to put artwork from their collections onto the internet. And there was the fear that if you put Sunday in the park with George up, no one would ever walk into the art Institute again to see it. And what they found is that more people than ever, they went into the, the actual museums. And so my hope is that I know that there will be a necessity of more of this virtual, um, interactive, different platforms that we haven't even invented yet, that we don't even know that are there, are going to be coming into play. Um, but I do think that there will be long-lasting effects from the coronavirus, and we can look at it, that silver lining, we can focus on that, or we can worry about that people may not be walking into our institutions for a few months. And um, my choice and my staff's choice and my board's choice is to focus on the silver linings and the openings and opportunities it has brought us. 
I think I think one of the lasting uh, lessons and messages coming out of the Corona crisis will be a greater uh, degree of humility across uh, all aspects of society, all all uh, all parts of society. And as we emerge from this this quarantine moment, it gives us an opportunity, and I think our institutions can really be the the drivers and the anchors for this to really think about what kind of society we want to be. Do we want to be, are we prepared to be more accepting of, of difference, more appreciative of what unites us in our humanity, more accepting of the stranger, more, um, you know, intolerant, if you will, of, uh, of, uh, of the uh, lack of any kind of, uh, uh, gun safety, reasonable gun safety legislation in this country. This is really a moment that we, in which we can emerge as a better society, as a more caring and compassionate society. And I think our institutions and the lessons coming out of the of the Shoah uh, give us that uh, that that cred and that ability to to lead those conversations. Well, I think that um, after. Hearing your final words, I think we can say, um, from your mouth to God's ears, <laughs> let's, hope, let's hope that's the direction that uh, we take. I think um, in answer to the question of hope, um, I think that's one of the most hopeful readings we have of this moment in time, and may it be so. Thank you very much, uh, Elizabeth. Thank you very much, Rick. Thank you very much, Beth. Thank you, Leah, for organizing it. And thank you for the entire audience. And let's pause with one moment of silence for the victims of the Shoah. May their memory be a blessing and a warning. Thank you very much. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.